Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3 and 4. We will be in both Acts chapter 3 and 4 today. Keep your hands there. There will be other scripture references, but if you'll keep your, uh, your reference there in Acts chapter 3, uh, that'll be a good starting place for you. So, uh, I am trying to build onto the message that Brother Ken had for us last week, uh, starting in Acts chapter 3. He started the story, and I will, by God's grace, do my best to finish this particular story that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 3 and 4. And so uh, I will be um, standing on his shoulders, if you will, because I couldn't have gotten to this height uh, if he hadn't have laid the groundwork for, for last week. Some people ask me, what's it like to work uh, with your son? And I said, well, I can tell you what it's like to work with my father as well as my sons. And uh, so when uh, Weston has a particular success in the, in the business, I uh, frequently remind him that that's because he's standing on my shoulders. Um, uh, frequently. <laughs> and, uh, and then I'm humbled because I remember that I'm standing on my dad's shoulders and, um, and all the work that he did to lay out a family business. And... Um, it is good to know that we're not in this alone. And uh, I'm happy to report to you that I'm standing on Ken's shoulders from last week. Uh, he laid out a great message for us. And, and please don't get tired of my referring back to things that Ken said last week uh, because his message really blessed me and, and spoke to me. And I, uh, I'm not trying to improve on what he said by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just trying to take it to the end of the story. So forgive me if I fail in any way. Some 23 years ago, I had the opportunity to sit down at lunch with one of the most successful businessmen in Murfreesboro at that time. Uh, he was in real estate. He was very successful. I already knew him uh, by his reputation. He already had a reputation as being um, very well off, having made a lot of money in the real estate business uh, here in Rutherford County. We were at O'Charlie's and had a nice lunch, and we talked about many things, but one of the things that we talked about was um, his success. And I could tell by talking to him that he didn't feel like he had really achieved enough. There was something missing. And so I asked him about that because I wanted an opportunity to share with him the gospel as well. And I said, what are you really after? And he said, this is what I want. I want a time in my life when I will have 10 million real dollars. Not blue sky on a spreadsheet on a balance sheet where you have assets that are supposedly worth this and that and where you might have to, you know, he said, I want 10 million free and clear. He said, if I get that, I'll be happy. So I asked him, I said, so if the Lord blesses you and you get that, what then? 
And there's this pause. And you know, he didn't really have an adequate answer. And I tell you that story because I want to ask you, what do you want? What kind of life do you want to live? When you get to the end of your life and you look back at your life and you take stock of how you've lived your life, what was the pattern of your life? I couldn't help but think about this when Sam was playing the song that, that he originally composed for Jewel and for Rachel. He was playing that for Sarah, and I was wondering, Jewel, how, how has life changed in the last two years? And that's just two years, right? So my question to you today is, what is the pattern of your life? What will your life, how will your life be marked? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you do what I can't do, um, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would speak through me, that the words that I say will encourage and exhort, rebuke when necessary, love when necessary, that your message will flow through me. So I, that's all I ask today, Lord, that I would speak everything in your name. And Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. I want to talk to you about the pattern of a Christian life. And we're going to start in Acts chapter 3. And we're going to start with a healing. Acts chapter 3 verse 1 and following. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. The ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried. Whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. That is called the beautiful gate. To ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This was an amazing healing. Many people would have known them, known this man. The scriptures specifically say all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate. About three weeks ago, Rhonda and I had the, the unique opportunity to walk on the Temple Mount. So we were in the general area where this happened. And there are gates into the various parts of the city. And there's a reason why this man was not in the temple, but he was outside the temple. And it wasn't because they couldn't carry him physically into the temple. It's because they couldn't carry him spiritually into the temple. You see, if you were crippled, you were not allowed to go into the temple complex. So he was outside the presence of God. 
But he had been there, and he'd been there for 40 years begging. So that so many people knew him and recognized him. I mean, he was like a fixture. He was a regular fixture. It's possible even that Jesus passed by, maybe with a smile on his face, knowing that deliverance would come later for this man, physical deliverance. But this was an amazing healing for this man had been lame from birth over 40 years. While Jesus may or may not have passed by this man going through the beautiful gate, we know one thing, this man would have heard of Jesus because he knew that Jesus could heal him. And maybe he was wondering why Jesus had not healed him up to this point. This was an amazing healing, but it was also a physical healing that led to a spiritual healing. Because you see, when this man was able to be restored physically, then he was able to go into the temple and then he could worship the Lord as his fellow Israelites could. It's a symbol. It's a beautiful symbolic healing. It's an amazing healing. It's a physical healing that turns into a spiritual healing. And it's a symbolic healing. And as Brother Ken told us last week, this is a sign of salvation. This is a symbol of salvation. It's a picture of salvation. Because that's what salvation is. Salvation is a healing of the soul. And we're amazed at this physical miracle. But let me tell you, it's more amazing when a soul is healed than when a body is healed. Because when a soul is healed, when a soul comes to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that healing lasts forever. This man, as blessed as he was in this special healing, one day came to his death and he died. He's not here to tell us what happened. But one day by faith, we'll see him in heaven and he can tell us what happened. Because the spiritual healing that took place there is more important than the physical healing. So, first we see a healing. Now we see a witnessing. Verse 11 of chapter 3 and following. While he clung to Peter and John. And you, you know he's just hanging on to them. You know, he's, he's just so happy. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom he delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. After you've been healed, you want to tell somebody. After you've been saved, you better let somebody know. Because this is the pattern of a Christian life. We're saved, then we want to tell somebody. And Peter's going to take an opportunity here to use this salvation of this man, this physical salvation. And he's going to witness, and it's a very pointed witness. And here's the deal. When we tell people about Jesus, it doesn't always go well. 
Because we're going to tell them the truth even when they don't want to hear it. We're going to tell them the truth even when it hurts. I mean, look at what Peter says. The, you traded the author of life for a murderer. You killed him. You denied him. You delivered him into the hands of Herod and Pilate. You delivered him. You denied him. You killed him. Rejected by you. It's a pointed witness, but it's also a singular witness. And that's one of the things that marks a Christian witness is that we understand that salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. Verse 16, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the, the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Look at verse 11. This Jesus, this is Acts chapter 4, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. I'm zipping ahead in the schedule and the uh, story a little bit to when Peter is standing before the Sanhedrin and his singular witness comes out here and he says, chapter 4, verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We're saved, then we tell others about Jesus and it's a pointed witness. People don't always want to hear the truth. It's a singular witness. We tell them the truth that Jesus and only Jesus can save them. And it's hopefully it's a bold witness. A little bit later in Acts chapter 4 verse 29, Peter and John go back to the, to the, the church at Jerusalem, the first Baptist church of Jerusalem goes back and has a report. And this is what he says in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with, there's that word again, boldness. Did you hear that in Sunday school? When Paul is wrapping up Galatians chapter 6, and he talks about, he, he prays, and he says, oh, please pray for me that I will continue to speak with boldness. Because a Christian witness is pointed. It points to Jesus alone, a singular witness. It's a bold witness. And it's also a witness that calls to action. Verse 17, back to chapter 3. Peter's about to give the invitation. He's preached the message and now he says in verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore. And turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And then Peter goes on and calls them to repentance. You may ask why we have an invitation at the close of each service. It's because it's a call to action. Because people need to respond to Christ in faith. Because people need to join this church and join the work. Because people need to be baptized. 
In Sunday school today, Rhonda was talking about repentance and how important repentance is. It's not just a mental assent that Jesus is Lord because as she pointed out and as James points out, that even the devils believe this and tremble. It's got to be more than up here. It's got to be here. And here is the repentance where we turn away from our sins and we throw ourselves on Jesus. So we have a healing. We have a witnessing. And then we, we're going to have a hearing. If you look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. And then in verses 5 through 12, Peter goes on, and this is the next morning. He speaks before the Sanhedrin, and he, he, he witnesses again. But this is the pattern of the Christian life. We're saved, we tell others, we get in trouble. You should expect trouble as a Christian. Following their wrongful arrest and their overnight imprisonment, Peter and John have to stand before the Sanhedrin. Here's a question for you. Why did God allow their arrest and their questioning to take part, to, to take schedule-wise? Why did he allow that to happen late in the evening? Because they had to spend the night in jail. Why couldn't he have moved the arrest time up a little bit earlier in the day so they wouldn't have to spend the night in jail? Because, you know, God can do that sort of thing, Right? I mean, God is in control, and God allowed them to be wrongfully arrested, thrown in jail, spend the night in jail, and then the next morning they're going to stand before the Sanhedrin. Why didn't he make that all happen on the same day? Why did he allow them to spend the night in jail? I guess we could ask Paul the same question as to why the Philippian jailer came to faith only after he had been beaten, placed in stocks, and thrown in jail in Philippi. But the model for a Christian is we're going to, have, we're going to suffer. Why would we not suffer? Our great model, our pattern, our role model, Jesus suffered. You should expect trouble as a Christian. You should expect worldly rebuke as a Christian. Verse 14, Acts chapter 4, verse 14. The Sanhedrin are going to have some trouble here, but, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposing, in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through, through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak that we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The pattern of a Christian life 
is trouble. Pain and suffering just like Jesus. And the pattern of a Christian life is also to suffer worldly rebuke. It's so interesting. They, the Sanhedrin said, let us warn them to speak to no one, speak no more to anyone in his name. You know, the world is fine for you to be a Christian if you just keep your mouth shut. They'll tolerate you. But if you start talking about Jesus, guess what? The walls go up. The rebuke comes. Why do you have to always be stirring things up, Christian? Why do you always have to be telling everybody that there's no way towards heaven through to heaven except through Jesus Christ? If you're a Christian, the pattern of your life is going to be trouble and worldly rebuke. And when it comes, not only should you expect it, you should know that you are following in the path of your Savior and his disciples. So we see a healing, we see a witnessing, we see a hearing. The fourth thing that we see in the Christian life is reporting. Christians are accountable to one another. And accountability is a good thing. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So as soon as Peter and John were released, they went and told the believers what had happened. Every single day at the print shop, we report on what we did the day before. Every week, Ken and Cody and I get together and we talk about what the Lord has done and what the Lord is doing. Every night before I go to sleep, Ron and I pray and we report to the Lord. We report in. We check in. Why? Because accountability is a good thing and it's part of a Christian life. Fifth thing, a praying and a filling. Verse 31 of chapter 4. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There it is again, boldness. A praying and a filling. Last week, Ken pointed out that the Holy Spirit is not specifically named in Acts chapter 3. But we see that he's there. We see that he's active through Peter and John and the healing of this man. But it's just like the Spirit to be last. It's just like the Spirit not to be mentioned as much. But the Spirit is very much present and working in chapter 4. The Spirit is mentioned twice in this chapter. First in Acts chapter 4 verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, gives his answer to the Sanhedrin. And then in verse 31, we see that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. A Christian life is marked by prayer and by filling of the Holy Spirit. And the last thing that I would point out to you that the Christian life is a giving. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. A Christian life is a giving life. And the pattern of a Christian 
is to give. I want to go back to what Peter said at the beginning of the story when he was confronted with the beggar there at the beautiful gate who expected to receive something from them because up to that point in time that was all he had ever gotten from anybody. But Peter looked at him and he said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter gave him what he had. And that is what a Christian does. A Christian gives what he has. And you have something that the world doesn't have. You have Jesus of Nazareth. Christian, are you giving the good news of the gospel? As A.J. said in Sunday school, are you telling other beggars where they can find bread? Everybody around you needs Jesus. Are you sharing the good news of the gospel? Are you giving? At the beginning of this message, I told you about a rich man that I had lunch with some 23 years ago. In my devotions yesterday, I came across this verse, Psalm chapter 62, verse 10. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. And I'm reminded of what Agur said in Proverbs 30. Oh God, I beg two favors of you before I die. First, help me never tell a lie. Second, give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? And if I'm poor, I may steal and insult God's holy name. Recently, uh, Weston had the opportunity to hear this same businessman now, some 23 years later, speak at, uh, at an event. And uh, I don't know specifically what his net worth is, but I can promise you he has more than $10 million now in real money because he sold all of his properties right before the recession, cashed in, and that put him in a great position where he could uh, multiply his wealth even more. But has he been a success? You know, before Christ saves us, we're all just lame men begging for bread. But someone was faithful. Someone preached the word. Someone shared the word. They shared the bread of life with you, fellow beggar. And now we have trusted and know that he has satisfied our every hunger. This is the pattern of a Christian life. 